Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change where we talk about current events and how they relate to interpersonal violence and abuse. Outspoken is a project of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center located in San Marcos, Texas. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse and is seeking support, services, or needs more information, links to resources can be found in our episode description. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of their organizations or affiliates. Welcome back to Outspoken, a podcast for social change. I'm Kiara. I'm Megan. And I'm Kirsten. On this episode, we're going to be talking about relationship violence and its connection to guns and mass shootings. For this episode, we're going to give a content warning because we are going to be talking about gun violence and mass shootings because it's been even more present. Um, we always know that we've lived in a time and in a country where, unfortunately, mass shootings are just a part of our everyday lives, it feels like. And honestly, in doing this episode and planning for this episode, it's taken us a while. It's been pretty difficult to sort of plan for the episode. We've been planning since, what, the beginning of June that we tried? At least, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because towards the end of May was the school shooting that happened in Uvalde, which is about two hours from us, so it felt very close to home. And for anybody who's not familiar, if you're listening to this episode, there's a good chance you're familiar, but it was a shooting that happened at an elementary school. Uh, And then in the process of planning the episode as a result of that school shooting that happened, there was another shooting that happened in Highland Park in Illinois at a 4th of July parade. And there's been even more since then. The statistic that we have here is that there's been 314 mass shootings in 2022 as of the recording, but that number's gone up. It's gone up since, yeah, that's not even correct now because just over the weekend it was Indiana was the mall shooting. Yeah. So just even in the context of us trying to record this episode in less than two months, that 314 statistic is no longer correct. It's a higher number, which since I did mention we're going to be talking about mass shootings, we felt that it would be helpful to give a definition of what that is in case people aren't familiar of what constitutes something as a mass shooting. And the definition that is generally given online is that it's at least four people that are hit with gunfire. So that is the definition that we're working from. But in the work that we do, we know that gun violence and mass shootings and they're connected to relationship violence they're connected to the work that we do so we felt that it would be remiss to not do this episode and not to talk about the connection because we talk about how all forms of violence are connected but we know that there is a very direct connection between this type of violence and the type of violence that we're working to end in our communities on a daily basis absolutely and i that was our focus of like what we wanted to bring this episode and what we could bring with our backgrounds and knowing that these different forms of violence are not only connected but also driven a lot of the time by the same factors in society that we're trying to actively you know work against and create you know safer environments by working against it so we want to get into that a little bit today and discuss like what do all these men have in common that keep doing these horrible acts of violence and and what are these factors that are driving people to do these things like not you know mass shootings and the domestic violence we're finding a lot of those are the same factors and that they're they they cross relate they interrelate (laughs) you know and uh, and we've seen a lot of overlap in the work that we do as being in the anti-violence movement with people who are doing you know 
works with guns and mass shooting and that part of the anti-violence movement, they're very much related. So yeah, we want to just dive in a little bit about how they're related and what's happening to these men that's causing them to be violent and do these things and, and what's driving this. And maybe we can come up with some answers today, give a little perspective. So as far as like mass shootings and relationship violence goes, we want to talk about specifically the connection between those two things. As Megan said, we are serving people who have experienced abuse, who've experienced violence. So that's something we want to get into in a little bit more depth here, as we do know that those things are connected. So some statistics, 68.2% of mass shootings, um, the perpetrator either killed at least one partner or family member or had a history of domestic violence in the United Mm. States. That's a big number. That's like more than half. That's like a lot more than half. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician here, but I think that's two thirds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot. I mean, that. I, mean, I think that just kind of goes to show that these are so connected. Yeah. yeah. And this is just mass shootings. As we were talking about doing the introduction and the connection between gun violence and relationship violence, I think about how many news articles when we look at the media that talk about a murder-suicide or a person who was killed by their partner in their home or other some sort of violence that's mentioned and it's gun violence and that's the way that it's framed in the media. But we never really see the terms domestic violence or relationship violence or anything that shows the very distinct connection in those headlines and in those articles, even though even us doing the work that we do, we look at those articles and we we see the very clear connection. And we've even talked about the fact that like maybe there's a need for media training with some of the media that we work with. It's very supportive of the work that we do just so people can be more aware of what that connection is and uh, help people connect the dots for themselves. I want to point out too that there are a lot of people who are in abusive relationships who either don't understand that their relationship is abusive or they don't want to report um, the domestic violence that's happening. So those statistics can even be underreported as well. There could be way more connections that are not reported because people either aren't aware of it, that what's happening to them is considered domestic violence, or they don't feel comfortable reporting. Good point. Another statistic here is between 2009 and 2012, 40% of mass shootings started with the shooter targeting his girlfriend, wife, or ex-wife. Which, again, goes back to this, like, intimate partner violence that we're talking about here where there there could be a variety of reasons why somebody would target a current partner or an ex-partner. But that definitely goes back to that factor of abuse and needing to have that control um, and power over another person. And the fact that that leads to so many mass shootings and the killings and harm of other people, that violence that other people are having to endure, it's huge. It's definitely something that needs to be explored. Absolutely. Like that. And that was something that, again, like I kind of knew it on a slight scale. But then when we started like diving into the research for this episode and discovering like some of these shootings, looking at them now in a different light and realizing like how connected they were to to domestic violence and how a lot of these uh, shooters were already doing a lot of behaviors that are directly tied to domestic violence, whether it be you know, stalking, harassing to like just in very severe physical violence. And like, for instance, the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened in 2016, that man had been convicted of severe physical abuse towards his wife a few years before. And when the incident came out, like there was a lot of background that he had had with domestic violence. So yeah, I mean, domestic violence is a red flag. Yeah. (laughs) And dating violence. And as you'd mentioned, like, gendered expectations and Mm -hmm. that element of power and control with 
the work that we specifically do as educators, where we were spending a lot of time in schools with adolescents and young adults. And even with like most recently with the shooting in Uvalde, the shooter had been harassing women online before the mass shooting. There was a shooting that happened in California, San Bernardino, I believe, who also he had released his manifesto to the world and it talked about feeling very entitled to the intention of women and feeling slighted by women not giving him the attention that he felt that he deserved or Santa Fe High School here in Texas. One of the people who was killed in the shooting had been repeatedly rejecting the advances of the person who shot her and he had even or she had even had a conversation with her mom about like if something happens to me like I know that this guy did this or he's the one who's going to do it to me so it's hard not to see the connection in that work or I guess like when we do what we do the more that we learn about it we'd see that so much of it is connected and that this has to be a part of the conversation and even when we're talking about it in a school setting, that sometimes for schools, solutions come with maybe they feel that they need to arm teachers or they put up plexiglass things around the front offices that I remember those barriers being put up in schools. As I was working in schools, I'm going into my 10th year of doing this work. And I remember that time where that wasn't a thing in schools and started to see be more apparent and knowing why is so uncomfortable and unsettling, but knowing that schools do that or they have conversations about bullying or mental health, which I think is also very important, but knowing that the conversations that we have about relationship violence is a part of preventing mass violence from happening in a school setting. I want to also mention too, we were talking about this before we started recording, this issue with trying to dismiss even just kids online, adults online, anybody who makes jokes about shootings I mean, the Uvalde shooter, for instance, as we've already talked about, like, his, was harassing women online before his shooting. And I know that sometimes it can be for some parents to just try to dismiss, like, it's just a joke. He's just kidding. He wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't actually take part in that or follow through with some of these things that he's saying online. But what we've been learning is that when people do make these comments, that's a red flag for something they may be doing in the future. So it's definitely something to be looking into as far as like, how do we prevent some of these things from happening and taking those comments, those quote unquote jokes, which we know are not jokes, more seriously. Sure. And the more you're exposed to that kind of thing, like the more you're going to be desensitized to it. And and I know that we're going to get to like the continuum of violence in a minute. But yeah, I mean, it's it is it should be a red flag. And and, in denial, I won't lie, like I'm sure for parents can play a role as well. Like as a parent, I'm sure like, you know, you don't want to it's hard to like look at your kid and be like, oh, like they're doing this thing because it's also a reflection of you. But it is important to like have those conversations, even if you do think it's a joke, because it escalates like that kind of stuff. It's just the beginning of like, there's a whole culture out there that I'm as a mother, very terrified of for my boys that I'm raising. There's a whole culture in the internet that is very much trying to breed that kind of uh, thought process of thinking badly about women or, or looking at women in a certain way or thinking that violence is funny and like just kind of making light of everything. And it's very dangerous and it needs like parental involvement and lots of conversations with your with young people and teacher involvement. Just any adult that has a youth in their life needs to be involved in having those conversations because we can't assume that they're going to think it's a joke. We can't assume, you know, like when you're developing in that way, you know, we have to be proactive. Yeah, it's a good point. 
Oh, and one of the other statistics that we have here that we wanted to show, because as I mentioned that many forms of violence are connected and they're interconnected. And uh, another intersection that we see with gun violence is the intersection between, I guess, in general with violence in the LGBTQ community with, we had mentioned the Pulse nightclub shooting, which Pulse is a gay club in Orlando or was a gay club in Orlando and a very popular one. Um, so it's not without reason to think that could have been targeted for a very specific reason. And then as we talk about relationship violence, uh, transgender people are more likely to experience intimate partner violence and they're at a greater risk for gun violence. Uh, transgender women specifically are four times more likely to experience gun violence in comparison to cisgender women. And nearly 80% of transgender victims that are killed um, are women of color. And a lot of the times the violence is being perpetrated through gun violence. So there's that connection there as well, that whenever we're talking about intimate partner violence and who the victims are, overwhelmingly it's women. But I think sometimes people forget about the fact that like there are certain women who are additionally targeted, specifically women of color and transgender yeah. women. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good point to remember that this is definitely not just affecting cis, like, cis women. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's actually like a huge problem with transgender women of color, like you just said, for sure. Thank you for bringing that up. And specifically when it comes to intimate partner violence, we've already kind of mentioned this, but going into it in more depth, according to TCFV, research shows that a victim owning a gun does not actually keep the victim safe. I think that there's a lot of talk that, oh, victims need to also have a gun so that they can protect themselves. But that's studies, research has shown that the presence of a gun um, in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. There's a book called No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. She talks a lot about this. She's a journalist and she um, does a lot of research. And so as far as like having a gun goes, I mean, if, if someone were to have a knife, you at least have time to get away. In some cases, you can hide, you can run into another room, you know, there's, there's a, you can shut a door. Guns eliminate a lot of that opportunity for people to be able to get away. And it can increase the danger for women exponentially. So she says, until a gun comes into the relationship, she still feels like she has some capacity to deal with what's going on, whether it's to run, to lock the bedroom door or whatever. The pro-gun argument that asks women to arm themselves is asking them to behave as their abusers behave. And mm-hmm. that narrative puts so much blame on victims. It puts so much shame on them for not doing something else. And it's it's not a character flaw for women to not have a natural tendency to turn and fire on someone they've been in a relationship, on someone who's the father of their children, on somebody that they've loved that they've cared about right it's absolutely it's an unfair comparison putting that responsibility on victims i think it's a conversation that we've had before of like the same conversation where we tell people to prevent sexual assault to take a self-defense class or don't walk alone at night that it makes people feel safer or have this sense of security of If this were to ever happen to me, though, we know that people have conversations in the general public all the time, like, well, 
domestic violence would never happen to me. I would never be quote unquote stupid enough to stay in a relationship with a person who treats me this way. But some people think that in the event that this were to happen to me, I would have a gun and I would know how to use it and that this is what I could do to protect myself, thinking that's all we can do, that the people who perpetrate violence against us, specifically abusive men and their relationships, that this is just who they are and people believe that there's nothing that we can do about it and that the solution is to just protect ourselves from them. Um, and we part of, I guess, a whole, a group of people who believe that there is more that we can do than to just arm ourselves and wait for the next violent act to happen in our homes or in our community, that it's, there's gotta be a better way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to, I think too, like how kids are being raised, you know, it's from what we know about intimate partner violence, it is a learned behavior. So without going in too much into it, how kids are being raised and taking these things seriously and teaching, you know, respect and all those things for your partner is so important. And like we said, when kids make the quote unquote jokes about things, you know, as far as violence and stuff like that, those are things that need to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How to have healthy relationships, how to deal with yeah. conflict in a, yeah. in a way, how to ask for help. I mean, like a lot of these, I mean, I, you know, the empathetic part of me wants to believe that a lot of people just need help and they're looking in all the wrong places mm-hmm. and that it's a skill to teach people like how to find help in the right places and how to recognize when you're needing that help because otherwise it can you can go down a path that's very destructive very quickly yeah how to handle rejection as well when yes. listed off those yes. things that yeah for sure so many people when we talked about like people who've been shooters and they've talked about feeling rejected by women Yes. Not feeling yeah. entitled. I was going to say some mm-hmm. of that's a sense of entitlement that, you know, mm-hmm. that person feels like they deserve to be in a relationship or deserve to be with that that other person. And when they are rejected, it's instead of having the respect that, yeah, it's okay for somebody to say no, that they want to retaliate with violence and act out with violence because they feel that they are entitled to have some type of control or relationship or whatever it is with that other person that they are pursuing or trying to talk to or yeah I guess with that y'all feel ready to take our self-compassion break and then come back to talk a little bit more about definitely well what does that look like because we can say that it's easier said than done right to just have these conversations but we'll take a break and we'll come back to talk more in depth about what we think that could look like Our self-compassion tip for this episode is to practice fierce self-compassion. Generally speaking, self-compassion is the practice of comforting yourself, reassuring yourself that you're not alone, and being present with your feelings. While self-compassion fosters self-acceptance, fierce self-compassion involves taking action to alleviate suffering and building yourself up when life knocks you down. Show yourself compassion in action by setting boundaries, saying no, fighting the injustices that impact you, or even leaving a situation that feels unsafe. Or say yes to yourself and your needs instead of prioritizing the needs of others. When you feel angry or need to protect yourself, take a moment to recognize what is happening. Know that you are not alone in your experiences and feelings and take a stand as a way of showing compassion and care to yourself. It is okay to ask for help and it is okay to leave a situation that does not feel safe. 
Remember, you are not responsible for the actions of others and you deserve love and respect. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, contact your local Domestic Violence Abuse Helpline or the National Domestic Violence Hotline. If you are in immediate danger, call 911. You deserve to be safe. Now, let's get back to our episode. All right, and we're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about how we can change these social norms and what we can do about all this information that we're sharing with you today. Um, A little bit ago, we were talking about how, uh, like, just for me, I guess it was a surprising statistic a little bit to hear that uh, so many of the victims of these mass shootings are women and children. And it's actually 64 percent is the statistic of the of uh, victims in mass shootings are women and children. So and it's just kind of yet again, like displaying that role that masculinity and male entitlement can play and how it's often not discussed in the media. And I know that Kiara mentioned a minute ago about how media training comes into play a lot because we hear about shootings that happen and people in our work will read these articles and it's like we're seeing the little hints in the article that it was clearly a domestic violence related incident, but that's not the way that we're discussing it. Mm -hmm. And it can be counterproductive because if we were having those conversations about truly about domestic violence and like male entitlement and like male aggression and like what this looks like and how we look men are looking at women and and talking about them like we could start together in society making these connections right and we could start understanding it but there's just a lot of like not drawing the right lines to each other and that's what we're hoping we can do a little bit today um another statistic is that 10 percent of the sites of the mass shootings in the u.s are made up from schools. So like of the mass shootings that we have, like 10% of them happen in schools. And that's like a realistic aspect of like what going to school in our country means for people. And it's, and for our female students, when we look at the statistic that most people who are victims in these incidences are female. And this says that women and girls are twice as likely to die in school shootings. So it's, uh, again, <laughs> even when we're not thinking that we're looking at a gender-based uh, issue, it, it tends to, our work sent, <laughs> tends to always uh, be there. Um, and it goes through a history of, like, what, of male violence, right? Like, we've been dealing with male violence for, you know, the beginning of time. You know, for as long back as you can look, there's been this happening with like uh men being taught that they have to like overpower like whatever it is like to to use violence to solve problems uh we're used that like anger and aggression or emotions that are acceptable for a man to have um and oftentimes the only emotion right that's acceptable for men to have and a lot of times when we teach people you know when we're taught like what being a man is it's not so much being a man as as it is don't be a woman right like yeah. We focus more on that versus like, so it's not so much being a man is a good thing or like, this is how to be a good man. It's don't be a woman. So it's like what we hear is women is bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you are know. some of the negative things that men are called? You know, if you think about the like negative things that men are called, like it's typically related to female characteristics in general. Absolutely. Being feminine or soft yeah. or weak, all the things that we attribute to women and negative bad words we can't use on this podcast but (laughs) things that are exactly attributed to women 
And that's exactly right, like what you were saying, Megan. It's like the opposite of what men are taught that they're supposed to be. It's another thing, too, I was reading about how um, when a boy comes home from school and says, oh, I got beat up. It's not uncommon for the father of that boy to say, oh, you need to go back mm-hmm. and like show him who's boss. Like, you know, like and it's typically men encouraging boys to be violent in response to violence. And that's not that's not typically what young girls are taught to do. Um, and the fact that that's something that boys are encouraged to do is to respond to aggression with aggression. Um, it just keeps that cycle going. Yeah. Instead of being encouraged to have some of those more what we attribute to feminine qualities like compassion and kindness and empathy and wanting to nurture, those are typically considered more feminine qualities that quote unquote boys are not historically supposed to possess. They're supposed to be have that that power, that, you know, aggression and dominance type of roles. So and to have conversations as you're talking about like those qualities like empathy um, and caring and connection and the fact that like we do boys a disservice when we tell them to man up and boys don't cry and toughen up and sort of like brush it off or if we sometimes I think maybe times are changing but I'm sure that of course it still exists that if a boy has a different interest like wanting to play with dolls or maybe he's interested in dancing and the response is well you just need to get him into a sport like football or baseball or something where he can toughen up and really show that aggression and the whole point of us having this conversation isn't the fact that we think that there's something wrong with men like we clearly know that statistically and historically that um, men have been the large perpetrators of violence, um, but they are also victims of violence as well. And that uh, the conversations that we're having are, are about the health of society, right? That this hurts everyone. These, these gendered expectations for men hurt men as well. And, and for us to change those things are only to benefit everyone, including the men who choose to perpetrate violence against somebody else I I guess it feels weird to have a little bit of empathy but it's what is it I can't imagine what it's like to be a person where you live in a society where it's more acceptable for you to choose to pick up a gun and harm somebody else than to pick up the phone and ask for help or to talk to somebody about how you're feeling. Well said, yeah. Because you you the only emotion for you to express is anger and violence and and it's not and you never and because of that it's like or whether you know it you internalize that right it's like you don't even have the tools to identify another emotion like all you feel like you might be hurting but it it it, it comes out in anger because you weren't even given the opportunity to know that you are capable of feeling like something else or even admitting like i am hurt and then like from there how do you have the tools to seek connection when you're taught that like seeking connection is a bad feminine quality it's absolutely true mm-hmm. or when you show when you show anger that's what fosters connection with you and right. other people that if you were to reach out and show that you have a feeling that people may laugh at you which further isolates you and harms you continually just because you did reach out for help that mm-hmm. 
It can't be this year. Everyone needs community. (laughs) And I know that things are changing for sure. Yeah, everybody needs community. And we do see it. We do see the change, but we need more of a change. Let's talk a little bit about how we change these norms. And it really starts with understanding what are the risk factors that contribute to this. And we've talked a lot about that. Like we've been talking about how like having these gendered expectations, like having these ideas of even just starting like anger is the only emotion that you feel comfortable expressing or know how to express or having feelings that you're entitled to female or women or that or that women are objects or just you know xyz like all these different beliefs as far as that basically amount to misogyny right (laughs) like that amount to not having a healthy view of the genders and having like equality among all genders other risk factors can be like just your exposure to violence like growing up and having a lack of connection to your community can also be a big risk factor like that feeling of isolation it's not all of those risk factors show that it's not surprising that humans who are generally programmed to need connection with other people that when people feel isolated and they feel lonely then they go online and they find the message boards that confirm for them the feelings that they feel it gives them a reason or an explanation for why they feel that they feel and they feel connection and community to people who feel angry just like them or who feel isolated or who feel uh, entitled and they're getting the wrong solutions from a think tank of people who aren't given different solutions yeah it's such a good point it's like exactly i think how it happens in a lot of cases I want to mention, too, you talked about, like, objectifying women and, like, using language like that. There is research done or they were looking into programs that are called, like, batter intervention programs that are implemented, like, after somebody's been convicted of domestic violence and they're typically court ordered. Something that is addressed is, you know, they go into details about what was going on and what was happening prior to a violent incident and typically what what's going on is the person who is inflicting the harm, inflicting the violence, which is typically the, the man, uses objectifying or dehumanizing language against his partner. And so that flips this little switch that this isn't my right. partner, this is this object, this is this thing that I control, and it's no longer this human, the mother of my child, my partner, my wife, my whoever it is. Um, and so that just, they have to do a lot of unlearning in these programs that you cannot refer to women, your partner, whoever it is in this manner, that's no longer allowed, but it takes a long time to undo that thought process and this natural habit of going to that place and, and using this language and, in regards to somebody else like that. So if you start at a young age and you're calling out young boys and teaching young boys and youth in general that this type of language is not a joke it's not funny it's not allowed it's not acceptable at all you cannot refer to other people to women in these derogatory and these objectifying ways you can really do a lot of prevention work which i don't think people truly understand like that can really make a huge difference moving forward as well yeah for sure that's a really good point it gets to some of those protective factors that Megan had mentioned as well, which are those characteristics that are associated with lowering the likelihood of a negative outcome. Um, Things like increasing empathy and feeling connected to your community and feeling that um, your contributions to your community matter. 
Uh, when we were planning for this episode, I was talking to the two of you about a TED talk that I had came across about a guy who was talking about how he almost became a school shooter. And one of the biggest differences that was made for him was that he had a friend who noticed what was going on with him and really just fostered connection for him. I think that sometimes we really just take for granted the fact that like connection and community and feeling that somebody cares about us can really go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. You said he was feeling like sad and isolated, right? Those were kind of the, Mm -hmm. the issues that were going on. It also just shows, like, yeah, how big of a difference noticing somebody and going out of your way for somebody else that you feel like is struggling, whether it's a friend or someone you don't even know very well, can actually make a really big difference for them. And Yeah, which sometimes people will talk about mental health being one of the reasons that people believe that this sort of violence, like, is perpetrated, the mass shootings that, oh, this person must be mentally ill. And even if that is the conversation that people have being able to get treated for your mental health is a part of connection and community and a protective factor right like having that a community that provides mental health resources for people when they need them like for instance like our work at hgwc like we provide mental health services for people who've experienced violence Um, and like those kind of things are also a huge protective factor in people getting that help because it is expensive like mental health care is not something that is easily obtainable it's not only hard to ask for but it's also hard to pay for so that's as it's like as a society and a community that is something that i i think that we should also like consider is that the availability of mental health resources is more important than just recognizing that we have a mental health issue yeah as well as normalizing it too there's historically so much shame especially for men to reach out and ask for help as you said So if we're normalizing like, hey, I'm not doing well or noticing that someone's not doing well and the like actually seeking help and wanting to get services is something that is looked upon as something positive and normal. So much more people would be getting the services that they need and going out of their way to find find those resources. But right now, I feel like although it is changing, I feel like it is still considered something negative and it's stigmatized and people there's a lot of shame around it and I still see people and hear people say like that people just need to get over it and you know you don't need to act depressed or like you already said like man up things like that is just it's not helping at all and people are not getting the help that they need yeah so I guess continuing that conversation of like what can we do about it? Something that the two of you have already mentioned a little bit earlier was um, recognizing that some of the, like these things happen on a spectrum, right? That people don't just wake up and go out and commit violence in the world. That we had had a conversation a little bit earlier about like posting something online and seeing it as a joke, um, knowing that our comments and our words, they are on that continuum of violence that either creates an environment where people think it's okay to do further acts of violence, or that's where it starts and it escalates up the continuum to a further act of violence. So uh, prevention starts with intervening. We've mentioned that on other episodes of this podcast, that even intervening when you hear a comment or if somebody does make a comment and being like, hey, are you okay? That's a form of prevention. Um, Being able to reach out and recognize that something's not okay and that can cause harm as well. And it also, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of like the Ovaldi shooter and how there was a lot of 
after the fact, there was a lot of like digital evidence of him posting things that were red flags, right? Like he was posting things saying like, you know, I'm going to do this or that. And it kind of reminds me of our previous episodes about being bystanders online and how, you know, like reporting things when you see something like that, like, cause you don't, that is, you don't know. We don't know if someone, like if it's just words or actions or what's behind the screen and it's very serious and we shouldn't risk assuming the like that it's nothing you know when it absolutely could be something really bad I'd rather I guess what I'm saying is I guess I'd rather report somebody for making threats and it be like nothing it not have been anything like they were just you know saying it than not report it and then it was actually like gonna lead to something very violent absolutely to that too as far as reporting goes and things it's definitely important to 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 pay attention to and make sure that, you know, we have sensible gun laws as well. Um, In the state of Texas right now, I mean, even if you are convicted of domestic violence, you only have to wait five years and Mm -hmm. you can get a gun again, which (laughs) is, which is crazy. And I, you know, I think even in Texas too, I believe that even if you are charged with a felony, you can still get a gun again after five years you've after you've served your time and everything you wait five years you can get a gun but you can only have it at home which so like as we have already talked about i mean so much violence happens in the home right doesn't protect the people in your home no it doesn't there can also be a lot of power and danger in just like having a gun in the home right like i know we were talking a lot about like the the death that's related which of course Um, is very, very serious. But like even just the threat of a gun in a home can be very dangerous and abusive because it's like you're using that as a means to threaten. Yeah, intimidate. Exactly. And that is very, that is threatening and intimidation is a form of domestic violence and abuse. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And all of these things can bind that it's not just one solution, I guess I believe is part of the conversation that we're having, that it's not just addressing uh, the gendered expectations that come or uh, normalizing people seeking mental health services or making it more accessible for people to get it, but also using that legislation and policy that it takes all of the different pieces of community to come together. Um, That all of the collective actions that we all take work together to prevent these issues from happening in our community and just the note is that we always just try to emphasize is that it takes all of us. It's right. not just us who do it for our jobs. It's not just the people who do it as activism, that that's very important. Um, that just remember that you don't have to do it on a large scale. Doing it on a small scale makes it a big difference as well, too. Yeah. Every level matters. <laughs> Absolutely. Which brings us to our prevention and action tip. Learning about the root causes of violence and understanding that violence occurs on a spectrum is the first step to preventing it. Intervening or speaking up against violent language or actions, including reporting it to the authorities, can make a difference. We can fight for change in our communities and legislation that will strengthen our community support and lessen the damage caused by violence and exacerbated by guns. In the meantime, speak up, speak out, and be outspoken. 